Hey everyone, it's Caleb. I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me listening on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, we are closing, well, we're not quite closing out the Enneagram series. We still got one more episode that's coming, but today is our final episode, kind of doing the deep dive into each of the Enneagram types. If this happens to be your first time listening, we've been doing a deep dive into each type of the Enneagram all throughout this year. And today we finally come to the last number, type eight. And I'm honored to be joined by Sandra Maria Van Opstel, who we're going to talk with about being an Enneagram eight and kind of what that's like and what we can learn from them and how we can better love uh, the Enneagram type eights in their life as well. I personally have a couple of eights. Uh, uh, I was going to say, a cu- I was thinking just a couple. I actually have a lot of eights in my life. Um, and so, I'm so excited to be bringing this episode to you. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Sandra here in just a moment. But if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, we really have two core beliefs that drive the entire podcast. And the first one is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And it because if anything has taught us over the last couple of years, it's that some conversations you just can't have with everybody. For one reason or another, it's just hard to talk about certain subjects with different people. And so we want to create a safe place to have some of those do- those difficult conversations and even disagree, but with respect and with dignity and honor for the other person on the other side of the table from us or on the person that we're conversing with as well. And the second thing is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone. And that we don't have to agree with someone completely in order to learn from them, that we can disagree with them and still learn things from them as well. And so those are really two of the core beliefs as well. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know, we're coming to the end of or close to the end of this Enneagram series. But if you have another subject that you would love us to cover on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me is through learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love an email from you of different topics or even just feedback for the podcast as well. So I would appreciate that. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my our guest, uh, Sandra. So Sandra Maria Van Opstel is a second-generation Latina uh, pastor at Grace and Peace Community on the west side of Chicago. She is a preacher, liturgist, and activist who is reimagining the intersection of worship and justice. In her 15 years with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Sandra mobilized thousands of college students for God's mission of reconciliation and justice in the world. Sandra has served as the director of worship for the Urbana Missions Conference, Chicago Urban Program Director, Latino National Leadership Team, and Northwestern University Team Leader as well. Her influence has also reached many others through her leadership and preaching on various topics such as worship, information, justice, racial identity, and reconciliation, and global mission. In addition to her ministry experience, she holds a Master's of Divinity from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois and has been published in multiple journals. She has authored God's Graffiti Devotional, Still Evangelical, The Mission of Worship, and the next worship. Most recently, she has authored the brand new devotional, which is available on Kindle right now and will uh, shortly be available for uh, for hardcover, 40 Days on Being an Eight Enneagram Daily Reflections from the uh, InterVarsity Press Enneagram series. 
uh, that has been, you know, released over the past year or so. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Sandra. Well, Sandra, so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Great. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yeah. And just as we're getting started, um, you know, for for the other Enneagram people that I've had on, I love just getting started with uh, people's journeys of learning about the Enneagram and kind of learning uh, what type they were. And so I would just love to hear your story of learning about the Enneagram and uh, your discovery process of learning that you're an Enneagram type eight. Yeah, well, my process to the Enneagram was through a spiritual director. So um, I think that's a really important uh, detail to share because I uh, had been seeing a spiritual director as I was working with a campus ministry and I was seeing a spiritual director for probably about five, maybe not that long, four years, um, really navigating some difficult things about identity and like who am I in ministry and as a person of color within a predominantly white space, all these questions about life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I started to encounter some of my strengths becoming my weaknesses. So I would um, speak courageously and honestly in team meetings. I would, you know, say the thing that needs to get said that no one wants to say that kind of stuff. Um, And I started finding myself in a lot of trouble. And so my spiritual director, um, who I had asked her about the Enneagram previously, was like, oh, there's this tool. People are doing these assessments. And she's like, no, it's not time. Um, you know, you'll know it's time when you're when you're over 30 or you've hit a major ministry or leadership crisis. And so the school of thought that she came from, from the Enneagram, I'm sure she was taught under some of the kind of thinkers and leaders in Latin America in the seventies and uh, that came, I think the States through Richard Rohr, but, um, and others, but the idea was that that was a really sacred spiritual kind of journey that you began and that you would know it, that you were ready (laughs) apparently when you're mature enough or when you hit some kind of leadership crisis and the thing that was your strength all of a sudden becomes your weakness. The thing that's awesome about you is that it's kind of like if you're a hammer and you you just hammer all the time and sometimes you don't need a hammer. And so that's kind of how I got to the journey. I talk about it um, in the 40 days devotional that I wrote, but it really was a very sacred moment where I wasn't at my best. You know, I wasn't like, hmm, let me explore who I am. I was really hitting a pretty significant wall in leadership and I was starting to see a pattern. Um, yeah, not only in like work, but also in friendships and in family and in a dating relationship I was in at the time. And so um, I was seeing this pattern and she turned to me that day and she said, okay, it's it's time. It, it's time to to do the Enneagram. So, so I was kind of a little bit of Gandalf, Yoda meets, you know, it's like one of those moments where it's like, yes, you really need this now. So for me, it was... Um, not something I was interested in doing. It was something that kind of found me in a moment of pretty significant crisis. Mm. Uh, How did you respond whenever she said, you know, hey, it's not time for you to do the Enneagram? 
you know, um, again, there are so many different schools of thought around it. And this was like 20 years ago. So imagine, um, well, not quite 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Imagine that being said today, like it's just everywhere. It's on cereal boxes, yeah. you know, it's an, it, so I think, um, I felt, uh, I guess I felt ready. I felt like, yes, I need a tool. I need some tools. I don't have tools for what I'm experiencing right now. And I didn't know at the time also what I know now about like, um, just trauma informed, you know, therapy and things like that. So I think, um, I just, I needed a tool to deal with the, what I perceived as an incredible amount of anger towards what I was experiencing in the world. Um, and I was ready. I was like, yes, let's do this thing. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know what I was getting into. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, uh, can you talk about the anger piece? I mean, that is, that's a pretty significant thing for AIDS and just how that, uh, how either you've seen that, uh, present itself in your life or even other AIDS that, you know, or observed. Yeah. So for me, I mean, again, like this all happened in the context of spiritual formation. And for me, Mm -hmm. that's very important to know because, uh, for me, it was like, here I am, like, I'm in a process of being, being changed, you know, growing up, maturing, uh, coming to my true self, all those things. And here I find this, this, this experience in life where everyone around me was telling me that I wasn't good at what I thought I was good at. So the anger came from being, um, misunderstood and being, um, kind of named. It was like people were giving me names and titles about my identity and myself that I just didn't think were true. So I do a lot of DEI work. I do a lot of anti-racism work. Um, and, and this was, you know, since the nineties. And so I was doing a lot of work, um, trying to look at systems of inequity within the institution I was working with and within different partners that we had and looking at like, why is it that it's so hard to retain, um, folks that are typically underrepresented women in this, in, in certain cases, ethnic, um, majority, global majority folks. So in our country, ethnic minority, still, um, people of color, uh, just dip folks that were kind of underrepresented the first and the only in a room. And a lot of times, you know, the, the, the work is difficult because it's the first time people are hearing, uh, maybe about a particular perspective or being introduced to a cultural value that's different than theirs. And so I was told that, you know, I make people uncomfortable, that I'm too challenging, that I'm too assertive, that I'm too, all the things that would make basically every, every male leader that had been, um, promoted in our institution, it's all the things that would describe them, assertive, um, self-starter, you know, willing to speak truth telling, you know, like, but in my case, um, it, it wasn't like that. And so I, I felt like a, a lot of things were labels were being put on me and I knew something was wrong inside. Like I knew I was, I was frustrated and I was angry, but I was even angrier that somebody would try to tell me about myself. So I was like, I know that's not what I'm feeling. Like I don't, Um, you know, just because I stand up for equality for women doesn't mean I hate men. That's not true at all. It means I'm pointing out that 90% of the resources that we're using are written by men. That's not to say men shouldn't write books. It's to say, does anybody notice that we're not actually centering the voices of women? So I would say things like that and get in trouble all the time. Um, be called kind of the idea was kind of like, well, if she was, if she wasn't in the room, like, you know, then then everything would be calm and we could move on with the build the, the business of building this thing, you know? Um, 
And I felt so misunderstood. And so I felt trapped. And I remember um, telling people often in that, in that season of my life that I felt like y'all can't see me, but I'm using my hands. Um, that I felt like someone was pushing me up against the wall with their words, you know, like you're this, you know, you're a troublemaker, you know, you're too bossy, you know, like whatever it was, you're, you're angry. That's not, you know, that's not Christ-like, you know, like all these things were kind of bad. I was like, listen, um, I'm pretty sure um, turning a table is somewhere in the Bible, you know, like, um, especially when there's injustice. And so I, I, I was living into my fullest self, I thought. Um, and so I would, when I, when, of course, if you get pushed up against the wall, what are you going to do? You're going to like, literally bring out the claws and defend yourself. So I felt emotionally, socially, vocationally pushed up against the wall and I was fighting back and I wasn't my best self. Of course I wasn't my best self, but what I was feeling and experiencing was probably, um, you know, levels of disappointment, of grief, of rejection, you know, all these other feelings. And of course, being a good old fashioned eight, I was like, all of it came out in the form of anger. It just, it's angry. It's angry. It's angry. When really a lot of it was like a small child. I felt like a small child stuck in a very dangerous situation. And I was trying to defend myself from, from people with power. Um, and that's how I saw the situation. And they saw me as a very powerful person because I apparently projected power, which I didn't know about at the time, you know? Um, and so they saw me as a person, they saw me as the power person. And I was like, how could you see me as a power person when you are three levels above me institutionally? It's five in some cases. Um, you could literally fire me now and I would have nothing I could do about it. Um, and so I think a lot of times all those feelings of like, um, fear and rejection and misunderstanding and disappointment. And even like, maybe I am bad. Maybe I am awful. Maybe I'm an ogre. Maybe I'm, you know, terrible. Maybe, um, all of those feelings were coming out in the form of anger. Like you're, if someone's going to go down here, it's not going to be me. It's basic survival. Um, so I think that that's, that's the, the, um, I guess the point about anger and oftentimes, um, when an eight, um, with someone who lives in the eight space or has an eight wing is threatened, um, or is feeling sadness or grief or disappointment, the strong, the strong emotion to lead with is anger. And so it keeps people from preying on you. <laughs> so um, it's oftentimes not anger at all. And I've had to learn to say like, okay, I know it sounds like I'm angry. Like, <laughs> like my kids and my spouse, like, I know it sounds like I'm angry. I'm not angry. I'm actually very hurt. You know, mama feels really hurt right now. She feels very sad. Um, she doesn't feel like you love her right now. But those kinds of like, she wants to cry right now. Yeah. Even though what you're hearing is my very strong voice. <laughs> um, because I've learned that people misunderstand um, what's happening in the experience and feelings of an eight, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, can you talk more about the, you know, maybe presenting this anger, but it actually is not anger uh, because, you know, obviously uh, if, if you're an eight, 
that probably resonates with you. But if you're not an eight, that's hard to understand. Can you just talk about that a little bit more? Yes. So, um, I actually wrote in a full, um, one of the devotional entries is, um, the the beginning of it's like, I'm not angry. I'm hurt. Um, and I try to describe it in there for obviously the devotional four and eight or someone maybe who's potentially in a deep friendship with an eight or works with an eight. Um, but it's kind of like, um, I think it has to do with, uh, learning to expose vulnerability, um, as an eight is very hard. And so, um, if I say like, man, you really made me doubt myself. Like, you know, that comment that you, that comment that you just like hurled at me, you know, it makes Mm -hmm. me doubt myself when people say that. It's easier for me to say, that's not true. And like defend myself, you know, than it is and show kind of strength. Um, Again, like anger is an active emotion. Sadness is a passive emotion, right? Sadness is like something that, you know, introverts do not something that, you know, extroverts do anger has motion. And I actually think to some degree it's good. You know, um, the anger that we see in, in folks that make the world change, you know, it's like sadness makes you sit there and cry. Anger makes you get up and, you know, knock down a fence, you know? Um, and so I think that anger in itself is not a bad emotion. Um, it's Mm -hmm. what you do in your anger, obviously that matters. Um, and I think that the issue of it being anger has more to do with like, I'm not going to expose my soft self to you because if I expose my soft self to you, it's like, you'll know where my weakness is. So it reminds me of like, um, you know, I'm not going to give away any spoiler alerts for any Marvel movies that recently came out. Um, but, um, you know, there's always, there's, there's been like maybe the Disney movie, Raya the dragon, and there's always some movie with a dragon. Right. So I think when I think of the eight, I think of like the dragon. (laughs) So, um, and they have these like very, very hard, um, shells, you know, they have these hard scales that are on there. Um, but you know, in every movie, they're always looking for like, what is the weakness of the dragon? Is it like the top of the forehead? Or is it, you know, there's always some weakness and they shoot it in their throat or like, this is something, you know? Um, And I feel like the point of the eight is to never expose its weak spot. It's always going to lead with force, fire, and scales. You know, like so. Um, mm. Not to say that the dragon doesn't have feelings, um, yeah. but the role of the dragon in a lot of these movies is to like is is the show of strength, whether the dragon is good or bad. You know, like um, yeah. and so. In, the, in, in, in spaces where there are socialized norms about how women or people of faith, you know, that, that kind of thing should be, then um, strength or armor or dragon-like qualities are not seen as good. They're seen as um, things to change, you know? Um, and I would say, you know, every story needs a dragon. Um, and sometimes you need those skills. So who are they going to call in when they want to like start a movement of anti-racism and civil rights? They're going to call a dragon, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that anger piece is really, it comes from, it's like, um, 
a defense mechanism to not show that what you're feeling is really shame or again, I think rejection is a big one. I'll just put that out there. I Mm -hmm. think rejection for being misunderstood or rejection for like not wanting to be um, invited to the party sometimes because you say the hard things. I think those are big feelings that are underneath. And so anger ends up being the thing that people see. Yeah. Uh, what's helped you discern between like, hey, this is this is like a healthy, you know, righteous anger versus a uh, this actually isn't healthy, and I'm I'm operating out of that place of hurt in terms of my anger. Um, I think the biggest, uh, the most important thing is, and this would be for any emotion you have or any number you are, is to have a community of people around you that you can process that with. So whether that is, you know, your therapist or your spiritual director or a small group or your best friends or your spouse, or there's people that you're going to say, like, I'm feeling this thing, you know, and I don't know what to do with this thing, this, this feeling that I'm, that I'm, uh, that I'm, someone asked me that the other day, actually. And I was like, whatever, not the anger question, but like, how do you know if it's, I wish I remembered. It was, I get asked that question a lot, actually. Like, how do you know if it's good anger, bad anger? I'm like, well, if it's anger at injustice, it's good anger. (laughs) If it's anger at something, at power being abused, then it's good anger. If it's anger, um, typically, and and, and typically for an eight, the anger is an appropriate response to injustice and idolatry. Like an eight is going to call out something that's in a room that's not right. And so um, and, and we're going to call it out with a lot of, especially if, a, if you have a seven wing, like you're like kind of the, the most vibrant, like splashy color in the room. You're like, it's going to come out real big and like with a song, you know? Um, and it's because we know that there's a, there's a way things ought to be. And so um, when I'm, for example, if I'm talking to college students about issues of um, tra- trafficking, you know, human trafficking or um, mass incarceration or issues of just inequity in education, I- I'm going to express my anger towards the fact that there are kids in our world that are disposable. They're disposable because of where they come from, whether that's a racial, ethnic, or a geographic location. Like, they're completely disposable. And the minute you change the, the outfit and the look and the race of the person, and you tell the same story, I mean, the news gets told different. That's absolutely true. And so if I'm angry expressing those things, it's because we ought to be angry, you know? Um, We ought not to be sad that people abuse their power. We ought to be angry because that's not how it's intended to be. It dehumanizes and minimizes the humanity of our brothers and sisters. And so I think that's the kind of anger was like, I mean, you should be angry. Who, who's not going to be angry about what's happening now, what I do with that anger, you know, what I decide to like, whether I project that onto like every person I see that represents something about that space. And that's a different story, but to be angry at injustice is a completely appropriate human response. And I would say if we're not angry at injustice, or abuse. And if what we feel is paralyzation and sad, that actually is a huge problem. Um, because it should lead us to movement towards something. And so it comes from, I think that's when it's like, good. I think when we, when anger is, um, 
man, you make me talk about anger so much. Okay, so when when anger is uh, <laughs> when anger is directed at at people, individuals that are like normal human beings that make mistakes and you can't get over it, I think that's when it's really hard. So I have a situation, for example, in my life. I try to keep my um, I'm very committed to conflict resolution, and I try to keep my enemies my enemies list very short. So I try my best, like when I know something's wrong, I'll like approach the person and try to talk through it. Even if someone has wronged me and I responded poorly, like I try to work through it, but there is, there are, there is a situation, you know, for me right now where, um, there's a huge conflict that I have with, uh, with a friend and like, no matter what I try to do, it's like everything that I do, then the intention is read into it. Everything I say, it's, you know, I'm just angry. And I'm like, I'm actually not angry. I'm literally like, I have, I thought we worked through this. I have no idea what's going on. And this person can't seem to let go. And this person is also an eight. And I'm like, man, I feel really bad for them because I, I don't feel that towards this person. I don't feel that, that towards any individual. I feel that towards, and in this particular case, to be honest with you, it's racially motivated um, because the person expressed to me that they thought I hated white people. And I'm like, that's not true at all. I hate white supremacy. I hate it. Like, I hate that my children um, will not be treated the same as other children because of the neighborhood they come from, the color of their skin, you know, the, the community they belong to. I hate that. And, and we should hate it. We should hate that we have systems that incarcerate black and brown men at higher rates than any of that. We should hate that. Um, but to say that I hate white people because I hate white supremacy is not accurate. And so, um, you know, what am I going to do with that? You know, so I'm like, I will talk to my therapist. I will talk to my spiritual. I will talk to my white husband. Like, do you think I hate white people? And he's like, I think that you hate white supremacy. You know, I think that you struggle when white people don't admit that their whiteness matters. You know, like those are the kinds of things that we're talking about mm-hmm. regularly. Yeah. Um, and of course I don't hate my brothers and sisters. I hate when I hate when systems privilege some people over other people. It's not right. It's not how it's designed to be. It's not how we're designed to be. So I think those are when I'm like, man, I gotta like process what am I feeling? Am I angry that this person wrote a book? These are the kind of silly things that happen in my mind. Mm-hmm. Or am I angry that when men write books, they get read 10 times more and bought 10 times more than when a woman writes a book. Like, is that, I'm not angry that my friend wrote a book. They wrote a great book. That's fine. I'm angry that the system will prefer their voice over my sister who just also launched a book. Um, so it's that kind of stuff that I think I'm sorting through constantly. How, and when, when AIDS have such a, such a folk laser focus on how power and fairness and justice are distributed in the world around us. How do we look at all of that injustice and still be like a whole person, like be like a grounded, happy, joyful, reconciled person? I think that's that's what a lot, I think a lot of AIDS struggle with, whatever their issues of injustice are that they're following. Um, I, think we, I think we struggle with that, <laughs> which is why we need help. Yeah. Community. <laughs> uh, uh, w- one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, uh, you know, 
one of the, and you mentioned this too, you know, one of the things that could be very tough for eights is vulnerability with it. And I was just curious of how does that play out differently for an eight as opposed to, um, as opposed to like other, and obviously I know that you necessarily can't speak for other types, but I was just curious because I think everybody struggles with vulnerability. And I was just curious um, to see how that maybe uniquely played out with eights as opposed to maybe other people. Yeah. Um, I, I think all of us struggle to be vulnerable in some ways. Um, I think some of us hide it. Like, I think if we have a personality that is, um, and a temperament, you know, whether that's a temperament or Enneagram type that has, that has the, the aversion, you know, to vulnerability, like let's say a seven, a seven, a lot of times is not going to be vulnerable about what they, what they really feel because and I'm a strong seven wing because they, they don't want to like face the pain. Like they, they just want to, yeah. you know, it's like, I don't want to face the pain. So I'm not, why am I going to be vulnerable? I'm going to expose myself. People are going to know this is happening. Like, let me just pretend nothing is happening. Let me just throw another, you know, gathering or party or like, you know, change the subject, you know, um, a nine, you know, on the other side of my, on the other side of my eightness is could like just internalize it you know, keep it to themselves, um, not want to like be, you know, causing an issue or, um, mm-hmm. ex- they'll have to maybe do something about it if they actually expose it, you know? Um, I mean, a one, you know, my husband's a one, so it's like, do the right thing. They're not going to expose vulnerability because they're such a, they're the good kid. So like, they're never going to talk about what they don't know or, uh, what they did wrong. Um, they're going to hide that, you know, for different mm-hmm. reasons. So I think yeah. vulnerability, we're all hiding all the time we're, we're, it's hard for us to, um, confess what is difficult in life, whatever those difficult feelings are, um, or, or patterns, you know, whatever those are addictions, for example, all those things that we try to hide from people. Um, we have an aversion, I think, to confession because it's going to require when we name something out into the world, it will require a process of transformation. Mm-hmm. You give it a name and you say, I, I, I'm addicted. I have an addiction to food, you know? So I have to, sometimes I tell my husband, the last four nights I've eaten like two bowls of cereal after you went to bed. And he's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I think I'm stressed out. So like, I mean, what's the worst? Two bowls of cereal, yeah. not a big deal, but it is an addiction. It's like um, soothing emotions with carbs, you know? <laughs> um, and yeah. so, and we know eights, especially eights with seven wings, we, have, we could have potentially have really strong addictive tendencies. And so um, if it's not going to be, um, you know, alcohol or drugs or so, something else, then it's going to be. And so I have to tell that like, Hey, like, I just want you to know, like, I, um, you know, I, it's really hard for me to tell him. Like I, I was eating the cereal. He's like, oh, I know I saw that the boxes were lighter. We have kids. So we have cereal around. And he's like, do we need to toss the cereal? So th- then we're talking about, he's a one. So we're making a solution yeah. now, you know, do we need to toss the cereal? Um, Cause it would be better to lose $20 in cereal than to see you go down a bad path, you know? Um, so yeah. I think those are the things that we're all, I think it's difficult for all of us to confess because the minute that we confess and we put something out there and we name it, we're going to be responsible for doing something about that. And we all have different reasons that we fear change. Like it's going to be work, says the nine, you know, or it's not going to be fun, says seven, you know, or um, 
you know, no one understands what I'm going through the way that I'm going through, says the four, you know, like all of us have a, you know, like it's going to be messy, says the five. All of us have a reason that we're like not wanting to be vulnerable. And um, for the eight, it's because I'm strong, you know, like, why would I need your help? You know, I can do this. And, and, and even when we try, even when we try, like, even when I'm like, oh yeah, I'm really struggling. Like, and I'm confessing stuff. And I think I'm, I actually, um, I feel like the vulnerability thing is actually also engendered and cultural. So I'll come back to that in a minute, but yeah. I am very vulnerable when I preach. I say like, oh my gosh, this morning, I'm just going to tell you what I did and what I said to my kids this morning so that we all know as people in this room that we're human. And that's why this is very important to pay attention to this word of freedom. Um, I'm very vulnerable with my friends, you know, but even in my vulnerability, it comes out as like strength. I don't know how exactly, but I say like, I'm really lonely. Um, nobody ever invites me to anything. They, everyone thinks I'm busy. So I always have things to do, but actually I just spend a lot of time at home. Like nobody checks in on my husband and I, except for two really close friends that always check in on us. Um, but like most people don't invite us places or check in on us and we're actually very lonely. And everyone's like, oh man, I just the strength of you to say that. And I'm like, no, I'm just telling you, please come visit me. Like invite me to your party, like uh, invite me to your backyard. Um, so for some reason, even vulnerability, and we, we I, my husband, and I can't figure that what that is. Like, what is it that I'm saying that's not translating? Um, or is it just my aura as an eight? Eight's just that what they project is like, I am strong so deeply that people can't hear it. Um, so the thing about vulnerability that I put that I'd say is a lot of books written on the Enneagram and podcasts on you know, teachers on the Enneagram talk about this issue of like an eight is strong and they're they're never vulnerable and you know they have a really hard time with vulnerability and I would say that that is true if you're a, if you're a male if you're probably an NT on the Myers Briggs like you're a, you know a thinker. Uh, kind of conception, you know, you're, you're one of those CEOs, you know, kind of that kind of what I think people picture when they see an eight is like a tall, you know, handsome, loud white man. I mean, that's kind of what people picture, like the guy on top and almost always on these Enneagram podcasts. Um, that's who they're interviewing, you know, the CEO of some, you know, major charity that changed the world, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's very rarely a Latina or, you know, uh, um, a woman, uh, an ethnic, uh, ethnic majority globally that, that in our case, like I'm an ENFP on the Myers-Briggs. I share my feelings a lot. I'm super in touch with my feelings and the, the mm -hmm. image and the caricature of the aid is like, they don't care who they step on. They just knock them down and they get their way, um, you know, because no one's going to control them. And I, I actually think that's, that character is unhelpful um, because as an ENFP, I'm, I'm super, I very much care about what I say and I still have to say it. That's the worst, you know? Hmm. I care if people in the room like me and woo is my strongest strength. I'm the strength finder. So I'm a, I'm a Latina woman, specifically, very specific. I'm a Colombian daughter. And if you know anything about Colombian women, they're like, super sweet and very hospitable and very warm. And the language is so warm and it's like a song. It's so warm and inviting. Um, and so 
I was raised by a mother who taught me that that's what it looks like to be a, a woman. I'm, I'm a feeler, an intuitive feeler. So I, I put relationship at the center of everything I do. And I'm a Latina. So hospitality is like right there and relationships at the center above and over tasks in every situation culturally. So I'm still an eight. Um, but what that looks like for me is very, very different. And so I think that when I read these books and hear these caricatures, I'm like, that's not me. That's not me at all. Hmm. So it's hard for me to enter into the discipline of like, well, then how do I hide my vulnerability? How do I put truth over relationship? Um, what are ways that I do that? Um, and when I do it, what happens inside of me? Because I literally had to go against my truest self and against my cultural um, DNA in order to speak truth to power to someone who's older than me um, as a person that comes from a hierarchical culture, because I believe that what I have to say is so important for those who are vulnerable. So I do the work and then I run home and I like cry and I take a one hour nap because I can't believe that I had to say that in a room. Whereas uh, a person who's used to being in power, who society says should be in power, who should be heard, um, who's also more of a competitor on the, on the, um, you know, conflict styles, who's an MTJ maybe on the Myers-Briggs and who literally is like, you will listen to what I say um, and, and actually doesn't really have a second thought about what they said in that room. They don't carry the same amount of stress and weight that an eight who's a woman, who's a woman of color, who's a feeler would carry if she's doing that kind of stuff. So I think the kinds of books that are written to help eights don't help that nuance, um, which is why I said yes when InterVarsity asked me to write the book because I yeah. thought, oh my, I so many, I know so many, especially Asian American and Latina eights that struggle with this because the caricatures is I am strong. And so, and I don't care. Um, and that's not, that's not true. So I think the Enneagram community is like on a scale of one to a hundred, I think there are like a two on understanding how cultural values mm -hmm. and racialized experiences are nuanced into the Enneagram. Yeah. Well, I think you touch on, you touch on such a good point, which is uh, very true and core to the Enneagram of paying attention to the internal motivation of the person, because the, as you were saying, the external behaviors can look very different, but it's those, it's the motivation. It's the motivating factor that is the unifier for the type. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's, it's the desire that someone has to, to realize and understand a world of justice and truth and beauty that is motivating the hard things that we have to do. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of times people are like, oh, you're so courageous. They like DM me, you're so courageous when you say your things. And I'm like, I don't, I'm, literally that's not courage. That's responsibility. To me, mm -hmm. I don't have a choice not to speak up. I live in a community where people are most affected by those things. And so it is my human responsibility, my neighboring, the way that I love my neighbor to speak up. I never think like 
courage is not how I would describe it. I would describe it as a natural reaction when your neighbor's throat is being stepped on. Hmm. The only thing I can do is, is say, stop. And so, um, yeah, I think anybody that is in that eight space where you're like, I know there's beauty and truth and justice somewhere. And you're always looking for, <laughs> for, for a way to, to contribute to that. And that goal is more important than whether people like you or not. Um, I want, I desperately want people to like me. Trust me, I'm the biggest people pleaser. I desperately, I spend most of my time going like, do you think they like me? Do you think they'd invite me to their party? Do you think they're like, I, I, I have no question. Like, I, I want to be liked. Um, but I think as an eight for the, for the mission that I find myself in, it's more important that I be respected and heard for the purpose of what I'm trying to do in the world than that I be liked. So it's not that I don't care. I deeply care. It's that, that that is not as important to me. And I imagine that all of my heroes in life, um, who, who, you know, Mother Teresa, I'm sure she didn't care. She was saying all the things out there. She was saying all the things in her Nobel Peace Prize speech. And she said it so quietly and so, you know, perfectly for her cultural context. But I mean, it was strong. And she said the things. I'm sure she wanted to be liked. Um, she wanted people to love her and accept her. Um, and I think that is what's the struggle for the eight, because ultimately, if we're paying attention to our hearts, what our hearts are saying is like, am I, am I loved? Like, do people love me? Am I acceptable? So imagine you're constantly putting yourself in a space where people are rejecting you because they're rejecting your message. Um, that's why I think this period that we find ourselves in, like politically, religiously, socially, so polarized. And people are like, I was called a Marxist and I, I'm not going to stand up for that. I'm like, I literally have been, I've been called a Marxist and a heretic since 1996, since I first ever preached one word. Um, on and off, because, you know, trends wave back and forth. Yeah. Um, sometimes we want to be reconciled, sometimes we don't. <laughs> but of course I care. Like people question my, my love for other human beings. People question my, my perspectives. Like I, I very much care. I mean, I, I, I went to grad school. I went to seminary. I'm in a doctorate program because I'm trying to be taken seriously for the things because I, I believe there is a better way. I really do believe there is a better way. And um, the, the journey for the eight, typically, if they are living into their, you know, whatever mess they're, you know, whatever mess or trouble they're causing, whatever good trouble they're causing somewhere, underneath all of that is the question, am I loved? Do people like being around me? Am I acceptable? And it's a very sad, sad question. You know, it's like, you get home and you're like, wow, people really question whether or not my faith was sincere. Like after all that I've done and it, it like, where does that leave you? But on your face, no. <laughs> um, I, I think people, I think if you're an eight or you're 
a close friend to or partner to an eight, you know that they're it's a very sad, especially women who are eights in in a place of leadership. It's a very sad and lonely place to be. Um and and yet we still have to do it, you know. <laughs> Luckily, we have other wings. <laughs> um yeah. But yeah, it's it, that's the question is am, am I loved, you know? Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk about the, uh, you know, uh, briefly about the person who is in the relationship with they, you know, maybe their, their friends or their, uh, their son or daughter is an aide or their, you know, their mom or dad or whoever, whatever the relationship is like, um, what, what does good support look like? So for someone who is an eight. Yeah. So, oh gosh. First of all, I'd like to apologize on behalf of all of the eights or the wing eight wings in the room um, for you having to deal with the energy and the force at which we express ourselves. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I said before that my my husband is a one. Okay, and he is a, a, a he's an STJ on the Myers Briggs, and he is comes from an affluent white. Midwestern Wisconsin background. So it's like, I mean, any kind of cultural value can I imagine we, it's completely different for us on every way, our personalities, socioeconomics, cultural value, everything's different. And, you know, he's just trying, he does such a good job being the good guy. You know, he's like, he's literally like, everyone gets the birthday email first from him. Everyone gets, you know, like he's the first to get the feet. He's literally the nice guy in everything. He, this week I've been a little under the weather. He's cooked breakfast for the kids every day and packed their lunches before I can even open my eyes in the morning because it's been so bad. Um, And so he tries his best to anticipate any mistakes he would make and then you know, I'm an eight. So I'm like, uh, can I take it and see our budget for the year? I mean, of course he's done the whole budget. He's like taking care of like everything, put in all the receipts, like he's done all the work all year. And I'm like, really, we've only given that much away. I thought we had committed to this much more. So there was no like, Hey, thanks for doing that. So much work. Like, it was just like, <laughs> what's wrong with it? You know, like we could do better. Yeah. You know, we could do better. We could be more generous. We could squeeze harder. You know, like, um, And so I just think he looks at me and thinks like, you know, what in the world? Like, um, and yet he, he, like, he's a good handler. Like he knows how to handle So he's like, okay. Um, you know, uh, so, so he'll make some joke usually like he'll, he'll name it. He'll name the thing that's happening. Like, okay, I hear your complaint. I'm gonna give you one. And then I'm going to expect some applause for all the work I've done. You know, like, so it works for us because he comes from a very direct culture and he's a direct communicator. And so he'll just say to me like, this is, and I think eights need to know. They, I think a good support to an eight is that you, you actually name what you're like, Hey, I can feel that's a lot of energy. You came up with a lot of energy today. Um, and like my husband says, and my happiness on a scale from one to 10 it's pretty high. It's like an eight, you know, cause I'm a, I have a seven wing. So like out of one to mm-hmm. 10, your happiness is an eight, but your anger is like an 11, you know? So can we get the happiness and the anger tops at the same thing? And then we can, um, so I think he names the things, you know, like, oh, wow. Okay. So if I would have just come in how you came in, it would have meant that like my mother died. So you're just like, you, you didn't like the mailman. That's what happened. Okay. Um, so he'll like verbalize what he's healing. Um, I think part mm-hmm. of it is knowing, knowing me. So he's listened to all of the, 
you know, the lectures by Richard Rohr and the, he, the uh, we have a spiritual director who's a woman of color who, who um, specializes in the Enneagram. And so he really listens to what's happening inside of an eight. Like what, what Sandra's mm-hmm. feeling inside is rejection. What she's extroverting is, is anger. Um, so he can tell because he, he knows that there are probably three or four things operating on the inside that are not coming on the outside. So I think he's naming things. I think he's learning about the type. I think we should all do that. Like I've done so much reading. I mean, just because I'm, you know, coaching the Enneagram, but in the one, so I'm like, okay, okay. I totally see why he feels deflated by that. He's like literally worked so hard to make sure that he doesn't make any mistakes and he's a good guy. And here I come in like, you know, did you forget to put that in the dryer? Like whatever it was. So, and he feels it like so strongly because he already beats himself up enough. He doesn't need me to, to complain, you know, to, to critique him. He's already critiquing himself. So um, I think the learning is super, super important. I think that would be the number one. And I think just naming the things like, don't judge, just name them. I see that energy. I don't yeah. know how to interpret it, Sandra. Like uh, you came in with like today you you've complained four times. And you haven't said anything positive to the kids. Um, have you, you know, are you okay? Like just, and a lot of times it doesn't turn out well for him. I'm like, that's not true. I said, oh, wait a minute. You're right. Okay. 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 I, I can I'm to say something nice, say something nice. And it's not because I'm not a nice person. It's because a stressed out aid is not a good thing to be around, you know? Yeah. And so I think him being able to name those things, I think when my friends cheer me on, like when I post something or write something or say something at a meeting we're at, and I get a text from a friend, like under the table, like, I mean, thank you for saying that you always, you always speak with clarity and courage in a way that's needed in the room. None of us would have been able to say it that way. So I think like affirming and cheering us on when we, and then we go, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I hated saying that. Oh my gosh. I just, I couldn't even believe I said that out loud. I'm, it's, it's so good to, to know that it made any sense at all. Um, yeah. But I think cheering us on, naming it, learning, I think there'd be the same for all the types, like understanding the motivation, um, loving it, you know, like cheering on the stuff that's great. And then naming without judging the behaviors that you see that you, that you want to ask about. Yeah. Um, you know, I also have a nickname. My husband calls me little Che, like Che Guevara. Um, because Che Guevara clearly was an eight and which is awesome, you know, mm-hmm. not always the best decisions, but he, you know, he was a revolutionary. So, um, and so, you know, I'm, he's, you know, he's, I'm the little liberator, I'm the little Che, you know, like, and so when yeah. I get like that, he's like, okay, Che. And he just kind of like throws it at me. Like, <laughs> so he uses humor in ways that are yeah. not necessarily demeaning about the particular situation. Um, yeah. But my friends, I would say my friends cheer me on. They very rarely ever confront me because who wants to confront an eight? Um, my spiritual director and the people in my spiritual spiritual community, they ask questions. So they're the ones that are like, um, hey, I noticed that, you know, um, X, Y, and Z, do you want to go for a walk or, you know, should we go for a bike ride? And so they're asking me like, do you want to blow off some of that steam or whatever? Um, so I think, I don't know, if, what other people have said, but I think those are the main ones for me. Like the people yeah. that love you and cheer you on and are there for you when you come home wounded. Those are also the people that can say, I know 98% of the time you're on, but this time you're really wrong. <laughs> like, um, yeah. And so how can I help you figure out a way out of it? Yeah. 
Uh, well, I have one other question that I want to ask you, and I know that, uh, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity to just say, hey, is there anything that we haven't covered uh, in terms of AIDS? And I know that there would be a lot of stuff that falls into this category, um, but anything that just comes to mind about AIDS that you're like, hey, this is really on my mind and I want to want to share this right now. Yeah, the one thing I think that I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I don't know when which, I don't know where I heard this. I mean, I've heard it over time, but recently it came up um, that I just really thought was really important for people to know is that a lot of times when people think about an eight, they think about like, well, eights like to control things. They like to control, control is a big thing, power is a big thing. But I actually don't think, the, the person said eights don't want to control things. They don't want to be controlled. And I think that was profoundly like it put like a finger right on what I was feeling. Like I don't walk into an experience or a team or a situation feeling like I want to control things. But if I sense that someone is trying to control me, like control my narrative, name, give me a name, you know, whatever that is, that those experiences, I will fight back. Um, and so with AIDS, you just want to be truthful. Like if you want something from us, just, just ask for it. Even if it's indirect, because that's your cultural way of doing it. Like ask for it indirectly. But if you're yeah. wanting something, but you're not saying it, we can sense We can sense the manipulation. We can sense it. And it's especially hard mm-hmm. when two eights are working together because I, I work with a handful of eights and I can like, I can, like, I just know. And eventually I will just say, are you asking a question? Are you making a statement? Um, because is that what you want? Um, and that's also a, a cultural thing when you're working with eights across cultures, it's like the person speaking indirectly and you're just like, I don't know what's going on. Um, but I think we sense it. So you're not going to pull one over on an eight. Don't try to control them. They, they will know. Um, yeah. just be honest, make your request known. And if they can do it, they will. And if they can't, they'll say no. Um, but to have a, a secret agenda, um, I think you're just going to find yourself in a very precarious situation with us. Yeah. Uh, last thing I want to ask, and I've been asking uh, every, everybody to kind of in the interview on this is, how are you different from learning about the Enneagram and doing the work to just continue to grow as a person? Oh my gosh. Um, I hope I'm a different person. I've been doing this for 20 years now. Um, no, lie. 16 years now. Um I hope I'm different. Um, I think part of it is being able to name what's happening inside of me. Like, um, because I think it's anger. Let's let's say I also think it's like anger or defensiveness. And actually it's, it's coming from a place of weakness. Um, or, um, let's say I, I, I feel like, oh my gosh, um, they're right. You know, I just always have to be the one to, I just always have to speak up. Why can't I help myself? You know, like, and I, I kind of, I, I have a lot of bad internal talk. Like I am too bossy. I am too aggressive. I am too like, I shouldn't be like this. I should just be quiet. And I think to know yourself doing the work tells you actually, no, you're not, you're not too aggressive. You're literally being who you are. You're asserting the truth in a room when the truth needs to be told. And I know it feels hard for you, Sandra, because you don't like it because you want people to like you but you're not in a bad place. You're actually in a very grounded place. And I think for any Enneagram number, it's super, super important because people will try, of course it's an eight, so I was like, people will try to control you. Um, <laughs> as, let me say this, this. Oh, this is what the person asked. They asked, how do you know as a woman of color 
if people are trying to use this against you, because I said people will use it against you if they know your number, how will people know, how will they know if you're using it, they're using it against you? Um, and my answer was, as a woman of color, people are always using things against me in a, in a predominantly white institution, like always. Um, and so I'm always fighting a system that doesn't prefer my way of doing things. And so it's very, very important um, if you find yourself in an institution or church or even a family where you're kind of the outlier as an eight, that you know whether you're grounded or not, that you do the work, that you, you know, meet with your spiritual community, with your therapist, you know, you do your yoga. I write about a lot about vibrating and yoga, um, that you do those things because you will be able to tell like, am I, am I in a good space right now? And, and I will oftentimes say to my friend, I have a close friend in the neighborhood, I'm like, do you feel me like, am I like prickly right now? Like, am I at a prickly stage or am I like, a, so no, no, you're totally like, you're doing well. I was like, okay, good. I thought, I thought I was doing much. I want to make sure because this happened and this person said this and I felt like, no, I'm just, I'm just speaking the truth. And I think I'm doing it in a very, in a very contained, very reserved way for me in order to honor the space I'm in. So I think the work that we do actually gives us that rootedness and that foundation that says, no, this is actually me. This is not my false yeah. self. This is actually what I look like. Not someone else is an aide, not someone else is an ENFP. This is what I look like as a Latina, you know, urban pastor, Enneagram, eight wing, like this is all the things that make up me that have gone through what I've gone through with the call that I have, with the vocation that I have, this is what I look like on a good day. Whether people are scared of a dragon or not, you know, this is what an amazing, brilliant, you know, town-saving dragon looks like, you know, uh, on a good day. Yeah. And and um, you can have your own perspective, but I'm going to know who I am. I think that's what the work of the Enneagram does. Nobody can tell you who you are. Nobody should tell you who you are. You're your tight community that you put around you, that you give permission to walk with you, that you confess to, that you say the thing about the cereal or the mistake or the addiction or the whatever you have going on, you know, that community, they're the ones that will tell you, take a deep breath, you're okay. That's on them. If they're insecure, that's on them. If they're going to prejudge, that's on them. And sometimes they're going to say, actually, no, you should take the week off. Because you're tired and it's starting to show mm -hmm. by the way that you snapped yeah. at your child yesterday in public. Um, so I, I think that's what the work has done. It's changing me. Um, and I hope that it makes me a better neighbor and a better parent and a better sister man, I wish I would have known this earlier for my poor siblings. Um, I think it's making me freer to be myself. Mm. Yeah. Well, Sandra, I know that people are going to want to pick up, uh, you know, the new devotional 40 days on being an eight and continue to follow you as well. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Well, Instagram is where I park myself mostly these days because Twitter and Facebook are getting uh, very hostile. <laughs> so um, I'm mostly on Instagram, which is a mix of ministry and pictures of my cute children. Um, and you can find my eight voice there. Typically, um, you can also <laughs> find me at chasing justice underscore, which is a nonprofit that we started. My friend and I started another, another eight, uh, started, um, about a year and a half ago. So you can find us there, um, for kind of like thoughts and ideas about what it looks like to live a lifestyle of justice. 
Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast and thanks for doing the work. Thank you. Coming out of that interview, I think one of the things that I am reminded about so much and one of the things that I love about type eights is their sense of justice and their desire to want to right wrongs and for people to be treated fairly in it. It's it's something, it's one of the things that I most admire about people who are type eights in that. And I was raised by an eight also. My dad is an eight. And so that that sense of justice is very strong in me as well. And so, um, yeah, I would love to hear some of the things that you've uh, taken away from, from this episode. If you have an eight in your life, if you are an eight or uh, anything else that you've learned from, whether it be from our Enneagram series that we've been doing all this year or um, anything else that we've been coming on the par- podcast or covering on the podcast lately. And again, the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you and anything else uh, or any feedback or anything like that or stuff that you would love us to cover on the podcast as well. And so I think that's all that I have for today. And so I do want to say thanks to Garrett Oler for creating, uh, not creating, Sam has, Sam Massey created the music for this podcast. Garrett Oler does the editing for this podcast. Thank you to the both of you as well. And uh, thanks to Sandra for being on the podcast today. And yeah, thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. I think that's all that I have for today. And so until next time, keep learning and keep growing.